I invite you to find Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible. I invite you to find also 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we're going to be in both of those passages today. Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 15. Welcome to guests that are joining us online, uh, maybe for the first time. Welcome to you uh, who are joining us maybe for the first time in this room. We're taking five Sundays to focus um, very simply on the gospel. We are focusing more specifically on the idea of becoming gospel people. That involves more than just knowing and sharing the gospel. And the temptation is going to be to limit being gospel people to only knowing and sharing the gospel. I want you to know that what we're after is much more than that. Not just knowing and sharing the gospel, but look at the graphic. Not just knowing and telling, but trusting, knowing, loving, living, and telling the gospel. Okay? This is a big project. We've just gotten underway with it. I want the gospel to take over my whole life. I want the gospel to take over your whole life. I don't want you to only know it and only tell it, but to love it, live it, and to trust it. So we're taking five Sundays to sit on each one of these themes. Last Sunday, we talked about what it looks like to trust the gospel This Sunday, we're going to talk about knowing the gospel. And this is the foundation. Um, Knowing the gospel is the foundation from which everything else springs. There, There is a content. There is a, a doctrinal content, an unchanging, eternal set of truths that we call the gospel. That's the gospel proper, and we have to know what those truths are because everything else we're going to talk about springs from that. We're going to use two texts today, um, Ephesians 2 and 1 Corinthians 15. As I noted um, a moment ago, this message is not going to be an exposition of these texts. We're not going to go through them um, word by word. We're going to use these as a foundation and take the big ideas and pull from a few other texts as well as we go, okay? Today, we simply want to walk out of the room with everyone being able to answer the question, what is the gospel? Pretty simple, right? Pretty wonderful, too. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. We'll read from Ephesians first. Ephesians chapter 2, we're just going to read verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, 
unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Father, satisfy your people to the depths of their being with the gospel. That's our prayer. That's our simple prayer to you today, that you would satisfy your people, satisfy us to the depths of our being with the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, please be seated. The gospel is, um, the gospel is news. This is going to be review for a lot of you, okay? The gospel is news. The, the word literally means the good news. I've got the Greek word up there that you can, you can see. It's the Greek word spelled out with, um, with characters that are familiar to us. Euangelion is the word, the original word in the Greek text, and the word simply means the good news, right? Now notice that euangelion doesn't look anything like the word gospel, right? Completely different word. So you want, you want a, a grammar lesson, etymology lesson? Okay, here we go. Euangelion in the Greek went into the Latin as evangelium. That's what the Latin text says. And in, in the Middle Ages, um, in Middle English, Old English, that went into the term um, Godspell or good announcement, good news in Old English, Godspell. That was their translation of the Latin. And then eventually, somewhere along the line, you know, all those extra letters got dropped and it just comes down to us today as gospel. So what that means is that we might just as well say, you know, we use the word evangelism all the time. We might just as well use the word gospelism. Evangelism, gospelism, the gospel, the same thing. Okay. Now, before we talk about the the content of the gospel, what it is, we're going to talk about our need for this news. And I really do think this is the great overlooked thing when Christians talk about the gospel is spending some time really dwelling on our need for this news. We're going to spend some time today before we get to the content of the gospel, really trying to plumb the depth of our need. Think about a child that grows up going to church all the time. Maybe that's you, or maybe that was you child that grows up in church and how eager we are for that child to receive Jesus as Savior. And what can happen and what probably does happen most of the time is that we impress upon children, you may have had, had this impressed upon you, impress the need to receive Jesus without spending any time really telling them why they need to receive Jesus in appreciating just why he is necessary. And so in order to understand what the gospel is and why it's good news, we have to understand the situation that we're in apart from God and apart from the gospel. So we're going to spend some time doing just that. We're going to notice what the scriptures say about our situation. 
And this applies to all of us. It applies to all of mankind. And we're, we're only going to make two points about our situation, okay? The Bible begins with the reality of God. Specifically, two points about God. Two points that are very difficult for us to accept. First reality about God. God created Genesis 1. What does that mean that God created? It means that God has ownership. Ownership of us. Ownership of all his creation, of course. We, it means that we are his by virtue of his creation. He made us. He formed us. He breathed. The scriptures say he breathed his breath into mankind. And then mankind became a living being. We are his. He owns us. There's simply no way around it. We would not be here if not for him, if not for God. The first point that we're presented with right away is that God created. He has ownership over us. Second reality that we're presented with as we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 is that God commanded In Genesis 1, God created. In Genesis 2, God commanded. He commanded Adam not to eat of a certain tree in the midst of the garden. And he told him what the consequences would be for disobedience. God commanded. What does that mean? It means God has authority over us. It is his right to tell us what to do and what not to do. What is good and what is evil, and to declare what the consequences are for disobedience. Do you see that God's ownership and his authority over you are presented to you right away when you open the Bible? It's the first thing that we get hit with. They're the first things that we have to understand if we're going to understand the gospel. That you are owned and you are under authority. How does that sit with you? Does that sound good to you or does that sound hard? Is there anything that we rebel against, especially as Americans? Is there anything we rebel against more than those two ideas? Is that something you just feel like resisting with every fiber of your being? To know that it does not lie with you to decide what's right and what's wrong, what's okay for you and what's not okay for you. To know that in life you must obey. How do you feel about the word obey? Have you reckoned with God's ownership and authority over you? The 
Those are the very first assertions of the Bible, and everything else that follows flows from those two realities. The Bible doesn't spend any time defending these truths. We're just told that it's true. They're unalterable. They're true whether you want them to be true or not. And any discussion of the gospel has to begin right there with the reality of God and his ownership and authority over you. And that does not sit well with any of us. It, doesn't, it didn't sit well with the first humans, Adam and Eve. They didn't want it to be true. And this is the second thing that we want to note. We're still talking about our situation, so we're not to the gospel yet. We're talking about our situation. This is the second point that we have to acknowledge about the situation that we're in. We start with the ownership and authority of God. Second note is something about us, mankind, rebellion and death. We have been rebelling against the ownership and authority of God since the beginning. In Genesis 1, God creates. In Genesis 2, God commands. In Genesis 3, mankind says, no way! We are not living with that reality. We will decide what's right and wrong for us. We will be like God. That was the temptation that the serpent held out to Eve in that first temptation. This is what the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so you see that we have been rebels from the very beginning. So if you find yourself not wanting to live under the ownership and the authority of God, your own heart testifies to yourself that you are a son or a daughter of Adam and Eve, these first parents, who didn't want to do that either. Other stuff looked good to them. Other voices sounded better. They were too tempting. They had doubts about whether what God commanded was the good thing. They wanted to be in the position of God. And that is the fundamental truth of our lives after this fall into sin. We want to be God. It's the very essence of sin. I will be God. That thought, I will be God, is the flavor of every sin. You know what lust is? Lust is the desire to own another person, to own and have authority over another person and say, your body will be used for my benefit. I want you to worship me with your body. Who are our bodies to be offered to? What does the scripture say? Romans 12, the body is to be offered to God. God is the one to whom we should offer our bodies. Lust says, no, I will own you for myself. I will do whatever I want with you. You are for me. Ownership, authority, worship. You will worship me with your body. Pride is the same thing. 
Pride is the desire in our heart to be the one who is honored and worshiped and praised. And I want everybody to honor me. And I want everyone to open their mouth and praise me for my wonderful attributes. And don't you recognize my greatness? Don't you see how we put ourselves in the position of God with every sin? Other people must worship me. We want to be God, and we want other people to worship us with their bodies and with their lips and with their words and with their lives. We put ourselves in the place of God, and the great reality of our lives, this overwhelming reality for all of us, is not the reality of God. It's this huge self. We have attempted to replace God, the ruler, that is the nature of rebellion. We seek to take the place of God. Now, I don't have to spend any more time trying to prove it to you. Your own heart and your mind are nodding their agreement. You've been there. You know. This is the story of mankind. This is who we are. The consequence of this sin is death. We see that. Mankind, rebellion, and death. God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And, and die we did. Not physical death. God was talking about spiritual death. We know he wasn't talking about physical death because Adam and Eve didn't physically die on that day. They died later. But on this day, the day they ate, they died spiritually. What does that mean? It means that in their inner being, they assumed a position of opposition toward God. They assumed a position of God-apartness. That became their reality. Instead of God withness, God apartness became their reality. And they were separated from the God that made them. They were separated from Him spiritually, as they would now be physically. They not only had to leave the garden of His creation, but they had to leave the garden of His presence. And they were sent away. They would, in every way, live apart from God and against God. And we are all born that way. That is the reality that we're born into. Born in opposition to God, not wanting to obey, not wanting to believe. And so we come to Ephesians 2, the passage that we read first, the Apostle Paul writing, and he describes our condition in Ephesians 2 this way. And you were dead. Of course, that's the way he starts. He's saying nothing other than what God already said would happen. God said you would die. Paul takes up his pen. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yes, exactly. 
And we're going to move to the gospel in just a moment. But before we move to the gospel, there's one reality here in Paul's statement that is so important for us to understand. If we're going to understand and appreciate the gospel. And it's the point that Paul is laboring for them to understand in Ephesians 2. Because he says it twice. And you were dead, verse 1. And then verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So here's what we have to internalize. We are not weak before God. We are not sick before God. We are dead before God. What does that mean? It means that you await the judgment of God. You await the the right judgment of God in his wrath upon you, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Those who are dead can do nothing. It means, being dead means you don't have any recourse. See, there might be hope if we weren't dead. We, we might think we have some recourse that we can make it up to God. You know, if you offend your neighbor, maybe you take a casserole next door and say, here, I'm sorry. And maybe, that's, maybe that helps you. Maybe that's some recourse to restore the relationship. You can't do that if you're dead. There's no recourse. Therefore, our position before God is Hopeless. The, the great omission in church life and worship is the failure to feel our hopelessness before God. We have this idea that we can make it up to him. That we can be good enough and do enough good to get back in his good graces. That's not biblical. You're dead. Dead and awaiting judgment. That's it. And it's not as if we're innocent victims in this. It's not just like we can say, hey, we're only playing out our heredity. We're only acting out what Adam and Eve handed down to us. How can God blame us and and place us under divine judgment in his wrath when all we're doing is being who we naturally are. We can't even play that card. I'll tell you why. Because you have loved every minute of your sin. And so have I. We have laughed and giggled our way through sin and sought it out, crossed mountains and crossed deserts to seek out pleasure away from God. So none of us can sit here and say, I'm just a helpless victim. No. Everything coming to us is deserved. We have loved it, and we have waved the banner for sin. That's the situation that we're in. It's the situation that the gospel meets us in. 
What's the gospel? The gospel's good news. The gospel is good news about the character of God, the action of God, and the promise of God. The gospel is good news about the character of God, the action of God, and the promise of God. If you really want to internalize the gospel, if you want to know it, if you want to remember it and relish it and take it with you, this may be a helpful framework for you to capture in your heart and in your mind, okay? Just notice that each of those three words, the starting letters, C-A-P, they spell cap. And you're thinking in your mind, okay, our situation, well, there's the reality of God, his ownership and authority. I've got to start there. Mankind, rebellion and death, that's our situation, okay? That's point one. Now we get to the gospel. Why is it good news? It's good news about the character the action and the promise of God, cap, C-A-P, the character, the action, and the promise of God, all three of those things, all right? The character of God. God is both just and merciful. How is God going to respond to these dead rebels, we who have offended him and not given him the rights of his ownership and authority. What is he like? What is his character? What is he going to do? Here's what we have to know. God is both just and merciful. What does that mean? Well, because God is just, that means that sin must be punished. Let's face it. We want a God like that. We want God to punish sin. We think of all the the horrible crimes. We, we think about the people whose sin we know we want to be punished. We don't want to live in a world where sin is not punished. And sin must be punished because God is just. God is also merciful. And because God is merciful, he forgives sin. We want that too. Especially for ourselves. We want mercy. We want, in this universe, we want there to be a merciful God. Well, I've got good news for you. God is merciful. But wait a minute. He's also just. He's merciful, so he forgives sin. But he's just, and so he punishes sin. And so how is this all going to work out? We see the character of God, but we don't understand how it could be so that he could be both just and merciful. Surely one of those things is going to have to be compromised. How can he both punish our sin and show us mercy? The second aspect of the gospel is the action of God. This is the gospel proper. The gospel proper, what I'm calling the gospel proper, is the announcement of what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. The action that he has taken on behalf of the sinner in Jesus Christ. This is what God has done. Listen. He has taken, God the Father has taken the totality of sin and he has laid it all upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He accounted the totality of sin, accounted it all to the account of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and punished that sin fully in the body of Christ on the cross for those six hours. Do you understand God has taken all sin and laid it upon his son and punished it fully in the body of his son. Jesus himself was without sin, but God laid sin upon his son. And for those six hours, the full just punishment for sin was exacted from Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he writes, Christ died for our Sins. And this is what we call the substitutionary atonement. This is the heart of the gospel. Any presentation, any statement of what the gospel is, and you can find a million of them if you search church websites and go to their doctrinal statements, this is the one thing that has to be there, the substitutionary atonement. It's the heart of the gospel. Sin was laid upon Christ and punished in Christ in our place. And God's appropriate, just, right anger and wrath against sin was exhausted, was quenched, was satisfied. In the death of Christ for sins. This one death, this one son who willingly, and Christ was not a victim, Jesus willingly laid down his life for sins. And so we see that God is and will always be just. Sin was not overlooked. God is not some kind of cosmic grandpa that's a softy that just sweeps sin under the rug so that you can be forgiven. Sin has been dealt with fully. It's received its full punishment in the body of Jesus on the cross. The gospel announcement, the good news, the good news that even penetrates the ears of dead sinners is that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the perfect one, the Son, the one in whom was all the Father's delight, who knew no sin but knew perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, humbled himself and willingly laid down his life for rebels who had no hope but laid cold and dead in the tombs, awaiting judgment. That's you and me, cold and dead in the tombs, awaiting judgment unless something was done for them on the outside to satisfy this God who owns them and has authority over them. This Jesus, the wonderful and gracious one, has been put to death for sinners That's the gospel. Christ has died in the place of the sinner. That's the gospel proper. It's the action of God on your behalf. And this is the promise, the character of God, right? God is just and merciful. 
the action of God. Christ died for sinners, showing God is just. Sin was punished. And now here's the promise, and this is where we see his mercy satisfied. The promise he's given us that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. The character of God, the action of God, the promise of God. The promise of mercy. Who receives mercy? According to the verse that you see in front of you, or in your copy of the Bible, who receives mercy in the form of eternal life and resurrection? Everyone who looks and believes. Looks and believes. Looks on the Son and believes in Him. The promise of mercy. See, there's no action to be undertaken by you. All of the action, all of the work has been done by God. You say, wait a minute. Looking is action. God does want me to do an action. I'm supposed to look. No, looking is not work. Looking is not a work. I'll prove it to you. If someone tells us both to go out and rake the lawn, and you rake the lawn, and I look at you raking the lawn, have you worked? Have, have I worked? No. I have looked upon you doing the work. Christ has done the work. We look at him and believe that his death has satisfied God's wrath against our sin. There's nothing left for you to do but look at Jesus and believe in him. This is the announcement that even penetrates dead ears, that brings a spiritually dead person to life. Because you know what? None of us can tolerate hearing anymore that we have to work harder to please God. That is not a good announcement. That is not a life-giving announcement to give to a dead person. Just try a little bit harder to be good, and you can win yourself back into God's favor. You have tried that path. You have tried to be better. It doesn't work. And I have too. The announcement that brings life is that Christ has been put to death for sins. Only look and believe. The character of God, he is just and and merciful. The action of God, Christ has died for sinners. God is just. The promise of God, forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who believe. God is merciful. Every other gospel, every other religion says, God, look what I've done for you. The true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, look at what God has done for you. And no matter how much time we spend studying the gospel, studying the doctrine and studying the words and the terms, and we could spend forever studying the gospel, it would never compare to the time that we could spend wondering and marveling at the gospel. Wondering and marveling at how could this be so? Why should God be so favorably disposed towards sinners that he would deliver up 
his only son to buy back a wayward, rebellious, offensive son or daughter. Who does that? Why care? Why sacrifice anything for someone who hates you? Let alone the perfect one. Why should it be so? Why is grace the theme of existence and not law? Why is God love and not indifference? Why would God love us so much? There comes a point when study just has to turn to praise because we understand that there is no satisfactory answer to these questions for why these things should be so. All we can do is praise and sing because they are so. Because God is who he is. Okay, if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand. In the end, the gospel means that God is good and you are loved. It means that God is good beyond all explanation and all expectation. And it means that you are loved beyond all efforts at measurement, that you are known delighted in, adopted, loved, and secure forever. The gospel means that you are now bound more tightly by love than you formerly were by sin. Think about that. That's astounding now bound more tightly by love than you formerly were by sin. That's amazing. It's true. That's the gospel. And that's why we trust it and know it and love it and live it and tell it. Father, blessed are you forever with the Son and with the Holy Spirit for you have satisfied your justice and mercy in the costliest way possible through the giving of your son. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.